Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Truth and Movies today. Thor Ragnarok. Stand by for a cataclysmic superset two as we compare our scores on Taika Waikiki's third instalment of the series at over two hours long. Would Thor Bottom be a better title? Then, another film about a man and his hammer, Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name. Excitement as the Little White Lies cover star hits the big screen. Plus Film Club, Waititi's early sleeper hit, Hunt for the Wilder People. Wilder People like it. We'll find out in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. It's David Jenkins. Hi. It's Adam Woodward. Hi. Of course, you can get in touch, remember, with email. The address is truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. You can find us on Twitter, at LWLies, or on Facebook, or at LWLies.com, our comments page messages still trickling in there all sorts of interesting discussion points not all of them negative no no some, some positive actually absolutely absolutely here's an interesting one from martin belderson in leeds who says we seemed a little bit unsure last week about the significance of witches in zambian society uh, he says unfortunately throughout the whole of central africa murder of innocence accused of witchcraft is actually a huge problem he then goes on to list and detail all sorts of horrendous and horrific cases uh, and says in this context that he has actually first-hand, well, uh, second-hand uh, experience of, he says in, in this context, Neoni's film is not only important but also brave. Humour is one of the best ways of diffusing irrational fear. Apologies for t- such a grim email, but I hope this gives you an idea of why I am not a witch was made. Well, thanks for that, Martin. Talk about a bit of perspective. Yeah, it's really insightful. Mm. I kind of wish that that had been transmitted more by the film, though. Mm. That's kind of made me like the film less. But I think the merit, really? the merits for making it are, um, are even more so there. But mm. yeah, I am not a witch. Was one of the films we were discussing last week, David, in your absence, mm-hmm. along with Death of Stalin. Since you're here, have you seen those? I've seen both of those. And what did you think? Well, I shouldn't really say, should I? Why not? Because someone else has had their shot at those ones. I can't have an opinion on everything. All right then, David. Not to derail this yes. fledgling pod too early, but yeah. I saw Blade Runner twenty forty nine finally. Ah. It's rubbish. You didn't like it either? (laughs) No. I need to book a week off and go back and see it again because maybe I was just caught up in the the hype, but I found it kind of like a wondrous visual experience. I mean, because it feels so much like visiting a spa, you know, booking some time off to go and visit this film Mm. does kind of make sense, I think. Rubbish is strong, though, Adam. Do you (laughs) you not think maybe you want to cut him a little bit of slack? 
Yeah, it looked pretty and everything. Uh It it just annoyed me that everything, the sound design is over the top. There's so many beautiful scenes which he kind of obscures. Like There's a great bit of acting from Harrison Ford when he finally comes into it and you basically can't see his face through most of it because he's he's in shadow. There's a kind of weird light effect that's Mm. like, that really annoyed me. I was like, just you've got a great veteran actor just show him emoting don't kind of cover it up i think it's interesting actually i I read an article where denny's villeneuve was interviewed and asked what was his insight into the fact that box office figures were fairly kind of modest for for blade runners particularly in the u.s in the Mm. uk it's done really well i mean they'd looked at kind of demographics and the people actually going to see it and it was mainly older men who already were familiar with the franchise and were fans of the original who were kind of going again to sort of pay homage. So Mm. it didn't actually kind of manage to break out and reach a new audience of people who didn't know what Blade Runner is and didn't kind of buy into this new thing. And also apparently there was an issue with the fact that because they were being so spoiler phobic about it, they were releasing such scant information about what the film was actually about Mm. that you couldn't kind of latch onto it. You couldn't, there was nothing to intrigue you into the cinema. There was no like, oh, this is, I can see what this is about just, just through the trailer and the, what the story is going to be and I want to find out where the next point of this story is and they, they were very kind of careful to avoid doing that and I think mm. it kind of bit them on the ass I wonder as well I, I must admit when the first news of this sequel came my reaction was oh, I'm making a sequel of that I never mm. felt there was a need particularly a story that needed telling so that might be a bit of an issue but I'm glad I saw it well I'm glad you saw it too yeah. it's a bit like when they said let's make a film of Dad's Army very similar The comparisons don't end there. Right. Speaking of films that weren't crying out for a sequel, perhaps, let's catch up on the latest in the Thor series of films, Ragnarok. The story, dear listener, picks up two years after the events of Age of Ultron, uh, with the mighty Thor now shorn of his locks and his hammer, washing up on a planet called Sakaar, where the now permafurious Hulk is a gladiatorial hero. Here's the moment where Thor, played by Chris Hemsworth, explains his predicament to a new companion, Korg. Well, I really wish I had my hammer. Hammer? Quite unique. It was made from this, this special metal from the heart of a dying star. And when I spun it really, really fast, it gave me the ability to fly. You rode a hammer? No, I, I didn't ride the hammer. The hammer rode you on your back? No, no, no. I, I used to spin it really fast and it, it, would, it would pull me off the... Oh, my God. The hammer pulled you off? The ground. It would pull me off the ground, up into the air, and I would fly. Every time I threw it, it would always come back to me. Sounds like you had a pretty special and intimate relationship with this hammer and that losing it was almost comparable to losing a loved one. It's a nice way of putting it. Well, as you probably gathered from that clip, Thor has taken a different direction here. Kenneth Branagh directed the first one, then it was Alan Taylor, uh, Saw the Dark World. Taika Waititi brings a very different approach, eh, David? He certainly does. I say that, though, but my familiarity with the the original two titles in Mm. the Thor franchise are dim, I would say. A little story, I took a train in Spain across country, and it was about a three-hour trip, and they had these uh, video screens playing the first Thor film. Uh-huh. And weirdly, it wasn't a case of headphones. It was like they just played the sound out on the train, and everyone was, like, really into it. Oh. Anyway, so they're playing Thor dubbed into Spanish. You know, I, I kind of had to watch it. Yeah. And you know what? I felt 
I yeah. felt that I, re- I enjoyed it and I got it without actually li- hearing any of the English language dialogue. I can't speak a word of Spanish, right. so like, um, which I should have maybe said at the beginning. So maybe I, I, I'm not that familiar with the tone of the Thor movies. This Shall film, I simplify matters by saying this is a radically different approach okay. from the, the first two? Well, yeah, I mean, it's... It seems evident that by hiring someone like Taika Waititi to direct this movie, the dudes down at at the Marvel ranch have decided to sort of go in a slightly different direction with it. It's played as a kind of weird slapstick comedy. Actually, slapstick is maybe the wrong word for it, but I think it's a very charming comedy. It's very sort of, as may be evidenced in the clip you just heard, it has a kind of schoolboy humour to it, which is actually very charming, I thought. It's kind of big and colourful and it's for those who like to sort of like pencil everything together, like, oh, this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. You've got, you know, Avengers and then Iron Man and those worlds fit together and interlock and people swap over. This one is more of a kind of standalone story. Although they do manage to kind of shoehorn a bit of Doctor Strange in there. They they shoehorn in Doctor Strange purely as a kind of bit of a sort of brand awareness exercise mm-hmm. just to keep that tendril of the world ticking over until until the next Doctor Strange movie, which I think is probably like middle of next summer, I assume. I, I did actually think while watching it, oh, I've not seen Doctor Strange. I must remind myself to go and watch that. Oh, have you not seen it? They've no. got you. They've they got, got you. Yeah, it's, it's quite decent, I thought, Doctor Strange. Yeah, I enjoyed nice. it. There's been a lot of comparisons, and I think from the opening scene immediately you get that same vibe with Guardians of the Galaxy. Neither of you were particularly enthusiastic about the second one. Perhaps you were about the first. No, I was less enthusiastic about really? the first. Yeah, which is interesting because you really like this film. I anticipated this. Yes. I anticipated that you were going to go there, but I didn't necessarily come up with an argument as to why I like this and, and didn't like the, the Guardians films. I think that the Guardians films want their cake and eat it in terms of like, let's have the silly stuff, but also the big kind of ticking clock, the action, the, 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 the blowing up and stuff. Whereas this, everything felt very kind of like, very relaxed film. It didn't go for the kind of high drama element. And, you know, you never really, you know, Kate Blanchett plays plays the kind of antagonist who mm. is um, Thor and Loki's sort of evil sister, the goddess of death. And she does it in a kind of quite sort of weird rada it's like she's in a play rather than in a film. It does the things that you expect it to do in quite a sort of like standard issue way. But the, I think the tone and the fact that it's kind of constantly chivying in these little kind of moments of humour and these little jokes and these little... It's very, I mean, yeah, as you said, there's all these kind of references to things like Willy Wonka and um, I think the dog out of one of the never-ending story movies in there. Oh, really? Uh, the big dog. In, yeah. in, in never-ending story, there's a, there's a bit where a kid flies a massive giant dog's head around the universe right there's definitely a vibe there of of Mm. the giant dog in this film you kind of feel watching this film he wanted to make a film that he would have enjoyed as a kid right and i guess a lot of directors do that but i think he's really kind of tapped into something yeah he's 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 basically got his hands on the toy box and he's going through pretty much everything in there and having a good old, old go on it um I thought another film that it made me think of was kind of like a, a Thor and Loki's excellent adventure. It had that same kind of vibe as the old Bill and Ted, these two kind of slightly goofy companions kind of racing through the galaxy because it does take you to various low cars. One thing to say, actually, sorry to like, mm. dominate the conversation Not on this, but like, there's a, there was a really great long read profile of Taika Waititi in the New York Times. And he originally pitched the film to Marvel as Loki and Thor doing With Nell and I Across the Galaxy. <laughs> And they kind of half went for it. So I think in saying Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you've basically, oh. you're there basically. Okay. But yeah, that, that was his kind of like first time in the room pitch to, to, wow. to Marvel. 
It's packed with cameos, which we won't go too much into. <laughs> David, in his review, suggests, well, I'll quote here, it just might, might be the greatest Marvel movie out of 17. I mean, Adam, what was your... It, what he's saying there, though, is like saying, you know, that's a particularly great carrot or something. It's, it's faint, it's, faint know, praise. Yeah, it's faint praise. Well, it might be for you, but there are plenty oh, no. of other people out there who would say that there have been some great Marvel movies. I think that at the beginning of that review, I do qualify myself quite heavily on, on comparing Marvel movies to flat pack furniture. So essentially all Marvel movies are more or less built from the same material and just some are better constructed than others or have a more quirky I, design. I guess so. It was a very laboured um, metaphor. I, I think that's a fair comment, though. And, and actually, it's to Waititi's credit, even more so, that he manages to do something which feels, I think, a bit fresher than what we've had from the last couple of Marvel movies. They, they have hit this groove now where you just know what to expect. You know, kind of scene by scene where the jokes are going to come. And you, you mentioned it not being like a slapstick comedy necessarily, but there is a lot of physical comedy in that, uh, in, in Thor Ragnarok. And he combines that with the action set pieces really well so there's there's moments where you're kind of he's not asking you to laugh or to be wowed by the spectacle of it but you're kind of feeling yeah you're feeling different emotions at the same time which is interesting Hmm. it felt a little bit more kind of you know impressionistic like you know we're going to go over here we're going to go over here more jazz a bit more jazz yeah i mean it it, or, or just or just a bit looser you know you didn't sort of end up looking at your watch thinking all right we should be expecting the final battle now and Although you, know. you do get there. He does, in the yeah. end, kind of fit into a more kind of conventional story arc. David's a big fan of this film within the context of it actually being a Marvel mm-hmm. movie. What was your view, Adam? Yeah, I think it takes you to some really surprising places and introduces characters in interesting ways. I think we should give a shout-out to Tessa Thompson, who plays a character Valkyrie in this. She's not really like Thor's sidekick or like a romantic interest, but she she's sort of all things and, and nothing at the same time as a character in, in relation to Thor. But she's really interesting. She's not your kind of generic, all caps, like strong female character mm. that Marvel have been trying to shoehorn in in recent years. And in your review, you actually cite her kind of the visuals that give her her backstory as one of the, the more interesting moments of the film. I thought he'd handled that really well. And Waititi, in with the humour, there are some beautiful... Mm. Uh, set pieces in this and the opening as well I thought was really well done uh, with the immigrant song the Led Zeppelin and mm. that that whole sequence there although I think this, this film does have some sort of nice little visual interludes overall it, it does feel a little bit like green screen heavy I guess the, the, the Norway stuff is yeah. desperately poorly done I'm not sure and, how you would get around that I mean yeah the Norway, Norway stuff maybe is, is quite poor given the yeah. budget of these films but, I that mean, looks I, like Folkestone and I, it doesn't, yeah. it, doesn't well, it looks like a studio I mean, with a picture <laughs> of if, if they'd have shot it in Folkestone it probably would have looked better than but yeah. I mean you know a lot, of, a lot of the film is set in, in Asgard which is a sort of fantasy utopia so you can forgive them for a bit of overuse of uh, green mm. screen but, but where it maybe lacks as a kind of visually exciting film I think that what Taika Waititi is bringing to it is as a director of actors he mm. clearly is like really into like building a relationship with his stars and, and building characters and bringing them out of the, the shells a bit. I mean, I, I don't recall seeing a, a Chris Hemsworth film, you know, where he was that funny. Same goes for I Tom Hiddleston. they tried to do it with Ghostbusters, the, the, the kind of oh, reboot. And of course. I, I really felt that he wasn't in that. That was one of the, the issues I had with Ghostbusters. Here, I think he genuinely is naturally mm. funny. And that clip, I think, gives a nice illustration of that. I'm going to say, this movie, I Uh-oh. thought was... No, I thought it was pleasant enough. And, you know... There are worse ways to spend two hours and ten minutes at a cinema, but it was utterly meaningless. You could see it, and if you didn't, your life would not change one iota. See, here's my issue with it. This is the 17th Marvel film, right? And superhero films became really 
popular. There was a kind of wave of, of acceptance for the notion of, of superheroes on the big screen. I think it was about two things. One, the technology enabled uh, directors to actually put on screen what was on the page, which before just wasn't possible. But secondly, you had, I think, possibly the, the Christopher Nolan films behind this. You had people putting adult stories I'm not going to say 100% real-life stories, but essentially believable, grounded stories at the heart of their superhero films. I mean, the Batman Begins is entirely... You know, there is a logic to everything that happens there. And the longer this has gone on, and, and I think Guardians of the Galaxy has a lot to do with this, the more Marvel has gone, oh, actually, no, let's let's not do that adult stuff anymore. Let's just almost satirise ourselves. Let's play this for laughs, which is great. But I think that they're going to end up having their own Ragnarok because I think once you reach the point where you're just kind of taking the mickey out of yourself, it all becomes meaningless and you, it's not sustainable. I mean, if you look at Iron Man, the first one for me was a, was an excellent action film. It was intelligent. It was well constructed. There were some great sequences. There was also a lot of emotional involvement, I think, in Tony Stark and, and his career, his character path, as it were, within the film. By the time they got to the second film, particularly Iron Man 3, they just threw that out the window for slapstick laughs, which is fine. But you you build all this stuff and then you knock it down again. You're not left with anything left to play with. I'm not sure if Marvel are actually safeguarding their heritage at all with this. I mean, it's a nice enough film, don't get me wrong. I enjoyed watching it, but it was meaningless. And I do worry that they've just kind of gone, all that stuff that made us big, all that stuff that's behind our name, we're just going to junk it. You talk about Blade Runner 2049 earlier yeah. and part of its lack of success being that people maybe didn't know what to expect from it. The whole point of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that they have cultivated this brand which, you know, every single film deviates slightly in characters and plot and effects and whatever, but essentially they are selling you the same product and that is what they have, you know, built up over 17 films. But I don't think it is the same product. I think there's a massive difference between, say, Iron Man and this. But is there really, though? I mean, like, they're, well, they're different films, different characters, different stories, I'll give you that, but essentially... You know, they are banking on a fan of Iron Man also being a fan of Thor. And maybe there are they are two different demographics, two different groups of fans potentially, but that is what they are trying to cultivate. They're trying to cultivate that mass audience. These films are huge blockbusters, mass appeal. They sit in the same place in, in the market, certainly. Mm. It doesn't matter what kind of director they bring in. And again, this is maybe why we should praise Taika Waititi for putting his own sort of uh, artistic stamp on it, I guess. But yeah, it seems to me that their kind of end game here is is not so much a concern right now. It's like, yeah, maybe the self-referential humour, there is a shelf life on that. And they're going to get to a point where they run out of ideas there. But for now, it's like we need to keep people coming back, you know. I don't think that they're all the same, but they're definitely all working from a blueprint which has been very carefully and precisely laid out by... Ironclad. I think it's Kevin Feige, that, who's, the, who's the sort of main honcho at Marvel. Um, he oversees everything with, with some other producers there. And yeah, to an extent... Well, it does seem like now maybe they are entering this new phase of... of broadening things out a bit creatively and, and looking a bit further afield for directors. And I, I But they started say, off, for example, with Kenneth Branagh did the first Thor film. That's a much that's he's a, a pretty he's a safe pair of hands though. It's like okay. you know, think, he's a Ron Howard version of But what they for example this the the latest Spider Man, I think equally I see them almost exerting more of a control, more homogeneity between films now with the way that Spider Man was almost turned into a another Avenger as opposed to being this kind mm. of maverick superhero which he classically would be. Is I he, also suspect that the guys at Marvel are very much looking at what's happening at the DC universe right. and the fact that, you know, 
Well, they get or, slated for being too serious. Exactly. So, yeah. so I suspect that the reason like a film like Thor Ragnarok has gone like full bore funnies is because what can we do that is like the opposite of this formula that has proven not to work? Mm. Okay. It's a nice balance to find when you can. Indeed. So you really like this one within the context of it being the tallest pygmy in the village. Uh, so what, what numbers do you want to give it, though? Um, my anticipation was probably... I, I'd probably say it's quite low. I mean, it's like two or three, just because we'll get onto this later, but I wasn't a massive Taika Waititi fan prior to seeing this, so I, I didn't have that kind of sense of excitement. And obviously I'd only seen a Thor movie on a, on a Spanish train. Actually seeing it, you know, my usual arc of watching a, a Marvel movie is that, you know, I'd maybe enjoy the first half an hour or so and then you know get a bit bored and restless but mm-hmm. actually I had a sort of opposite reaction I was like a bit kind of oh here we go again and then after about an hour I was like oh I'm actually really enjoying this and it's actually they've saved some of the good stuff for later so I, I liked how they sort of flipped that over as you say Tessa Thompson was, was great um, everyone was pretty pretty good maybe Idris Elba was sold short a bit in fact he's probably the only character who is sold short you know the the, the ensemble mm. is, is pretty high quality so like, right. four stars and then in retrospect it's probably a, a three. I enjoyed it at the time, as you say. I don't think it's delivered any kind of um, life-changing message or any reason to see it again. If you know, unless I wanted a bit of sort of sugar rush fun. Right. Okay. Adam. Yeah, I had fun with it. I'd say a three in anticipation, probably a four in uh, at the time, and mm-hmm. then I'd like to have seen a bit more. If I was being very critical, I'd like to have seen more of Thor and Loki together on screen. Because they're just, I think Hiddleston and Hemsworth bounce off each other really well, and there's maybe not enough of them together as I'd have liked. So three in retrospect. Right. Okay. I'd, I'd say anticipation three. Yeah, sure. The trailer looked fun. Started off as a three, but two hours and ten minutes of this is too long. So I would say that by the end, I'm like, we've kind of been round the loop on this one. Can I get off now? So it would be dropping to a two, and then my posts, because I'm kind of thinking like, I can't believe you've done this, this, and this. Like it doesn't matter. So it's kind of two-ish. Would, would you watch it on a cro- yeah, cross continental train? I mean, it's not a bad. It's not. It's, it's an entertainment, but uh, it's entirely inconsequential. It really is ephemeral. I think that's the new question the new sort of sign of of quality is like would you watch it on a cross-continental spanish train yeah in spanish in spanish if it was in spanish yes all right then next up we've got something in another language for you it's call me by your name call me by your name i've just come fresh from watching this at a very luxuriously appointed screening room adam what did i just see hopefully you saw Call Me By Your Name, yeah, which is Luca Guadagnino's third film, uh, set in Lombardia, somewhere in northern Italy, is how it's described in the film, in 1983. And it's adapted from a novel by Andre Ackerman. I think it's his first fiction mm. novel, actually. It's a cracking read as well, if, if, if anyone enjoyed the film would want to go and read more but it's, it's essentially it's very different it's very different yeah it's essentially it's a coming of age love story um, told from the perspective of a 17 year old uh, boy called Elio and his father is a professor and a, they, they every summer they have uh, an exchange student basically a PhD student come to stay with them at the family home mm. okay and the twist being that the exchange student that he falls in love with is actually Army Hammer yes mm. yes indeed and you were a fan of the book? Have you read the book? Yeah, I read the book actually after seeing the film. Okay. And then saw the film again after that. So it was quite 
interesting. It was a long time ago, so obviously we did this for our, uh, on, the, on the cover of our magazine. Yeah, and it's um, not every film that you give that honour to, so you felt pretty strongly about Call Me By Your Name. Yeah, I think you, David actually saw it in uh, the Berlin Film Festival in, in January or February and, and came back and was kind of raving about it then, and I think we got to see it quite soon after that, so it's, it's been a long... It was a long time in the pipeline, and then, yeah, really thrilled. I think my sort of personal gauge of, like the cover films that we do is are these films we're going to look back on in like five or ten years and be like not so much were they great films but were they films that kind of captured something of the time like mm. I don't know I look back on some covers we, we've done and think yeah that was a, a, a film that really meant something in its in its day and I think this will be one of those films What made this film stand out so much to you David when you saw it in Berlin? I mean I, I was a little bit sceptical about Luca Guadagnino I mean I'd liked both of his other films but So that was I Am Love I Am and Love A Bigger Splash A Bigger Splash Actually I don't think this is his third film I think he has actually made a, a couple of other films like mm. he's made documentaries and a, and a few sort of small of films previous to these ones but with those two films he set himself out as a very arch ironic director those films are very highly stylized you very much feel that he is behind the camera making these quite kind of um, flamboyant decisions about how things are filmed and how and the sort of pitch of performances and things like that and it's one of those things where had his name not been in the credits of this movie, there's no way I would have guessed that it was was by him. Mm. You know, he's gone a completely different direction. The, the way he's done that is by simply erasing himself, his, erasing his own presence. It feels like a very objective, observational film where, you know, it's just sort of, you're kind of almost peeking through the bushes or, you know, looking around doors and watching this kind of, this sort of romance play out. I mean, yeah, I saw it in Berlin and, and was absolutely sort of blown away by it. I had a really a mate like, came out and bumped into a friend who'd seen it in Sundance and we just had this kind of like excited conversation about it and um, as soon as I saw it I wanted to see it again straight away and it is a film that I mean we can maybe go back to this when we're talking about in retrospect scores but I saw it a, a couple of months later when I was tr- trying to sell it to the guys to put it on the cover of the magazine and even better the second time and and a quite a different experience as well in terms of seeing it with a bit of prior knowledge of where, what direction it's going to go in and how characters slightly change gives you a real sense of the fact that every single thing, every frame, every person, every nuance, every line of dialogue has been like absolutely kind of minutely calibrated. But then, you know, to watch it a first time, it, it doesn't, it feels very sort of natural flowing. For me, it's like got a couple of months left but it's best of the year best film of by, 2017 by, by a long shot really yeah I would I would echo those okay. sentiments and, and worth noting on the director as well that the way you described his kind of in, input on the film is it almost sounds like you're damning him with faint praise but it's a mark of a really good director when someone's able to do that and not necessarily impose their kind of vision on a film and yeah I'm a fan of his previous work his earlier work but th- this one surprised me in a way that I was just not ready for, not expecting at all. And the fact that he's come out with this, especially after something like A Bigger Splash, which is an entertaining film, it's quite kind of brash, it's quite showy. This is like the antithesis of that. It's Mm. really understated, really kind of calm. And I love it when a director that you think you kind of know something about comes out and just totally throws you for a loop. And it's impressive, I think, that he's able to do that. I mean, one of the reasons it works is because, you know, you've got Army Hammer and this kind of up-and-coming um, actor called Timothy Chalamet, who um, you might recognise from 
Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, playing young right. Casey Affleck. Right. He's in quite a few more things now. I mean, next year he'll be in a lot of stuff. And then you've got Michael Stuhlbarg, who is a kind of this famous character actor who has lots of little parts and... Um, very rarely a main role. He was in the Coen Brothers' Serious Man, uh, playing the father character, Mr. Perlman, who kind of sits in the background of the film, but then later on comes to the fore in a really fascinating and moving way. Mm. Um, my theory about the film is that maybe, although we, it's not about him literally, he's maybe the central character and it's you know it's his kind of perspective that this story is coming from. So you know, some, something to sort of think about when you're watching. Okay, and I noticed you, you were also both big fans of Esther Garel, who plays Marcia, a, a girl who's one of the characters in the, yeah, in the film. Yeah, she plays one of Elio's uh, friends, I guess. She's interesting. She's not really been in too much before this. Um, she's uh, the daughter of a, a famous French director. Who... Well, she brings a freshness. I mean, there is so much freshness about this film. Um, I feel a little bit sheepish about the fact that I'm not ready to declare it film of 2017. And I, I do hope that's not because I've heard so much about this. I mean, I did enjoy the film a lot. And you mentioned the father at the end. I thought was just that's extraordinary. That There's a couple of scenes at the end. And I think the final scene as well with Timothy Chalamet is just a, it's a brilliant bit of cinema. Uh, he's really good. Everybody's really good in this. Army Hammer's actually surprisingly good and yet my issue was and you'll be staggered by this is that mm-hmm. I didn't buy their relationship. In what sense? In the sense that you mentioned the words natural and flowing about this film and it is. It's tremendously I mean it's relaxed because it's that midsummer Italian thing when everyone's gone off to the seaside and there's just this these sleepy towns on the Lombardian plain and the atmosphere is captured tremendously well and in a very unobvious way in a, in a very relaxed and restrained way the only time that that the dialogue that everything just seemed to get clunky was when you get things coming to a head between army hammer's character oliver and uh, elio the young the, the son of the family it seemed like they were then going through the motions to me and that, and that really did have an impact on my enjoyment of the film because there were so many things so many elements of this film that i wanted to in, that i was enjoying and Unfortunately, a large part of the story is focused on the one part of it that I couldn't commit to, particularly emotionally. But that that was just me, I, I guess. I wonder if one of the questions about this mm. film that has come up a, quite a bit in interviews with Luca Guadagnino is the fact that he cast straight actors to play gay characters. Right. And I think, you know, I've, I've read some really interesting pieces on the film that have, you know, critiqued this idea of you're never going to have a credible gay relationship with straight characters you know, playing gay roles. And uh, I wonder if that might have been a reason that you didn't feel Well, I haven't read those things, but yeah, possibly I didn't, I wasn't convinced by the, I mean, not just the kind of the physical business, but you know how it is when there's a a burgeoning relationship and especially one that's kind of happening underground. It's like a like forest fire that's burning away underground. Um, It can be one of the most exciting things you can see in a story, that will they, won't they Mm. thing. And I never got that with them. I never felt the momentum. I never felt the excitement of these two people being drawn to each other. I would hesitate to say that too strongly because I still think it's a a great film. But, um, yeah, I just was surprised that I wasn't more caught up in that. What I love about the way that Luca Guadagnino deals with their relationship is it's not just in terms of like gay or straight and I wonder whether he casts them intentionally because Mm. the characters certainly don't 
you know, they're not kind of signaled to be homosexual at the start of the film. It's like they introduce us kind of just themselves, right? Yeah. And you don't really know too much about their and I, and I sexual I think I would hesitate to describe them as being kind of any kind of sexual because, exactly, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of experimentation. And, and that, I, I love the, the, the idea that it's just, it's a film which is dealing with like universal themes in a very intimate and personal way. And the relationship that they have and the love that they have is, is clearly very intimate. And yeah, it's just, it's just theirs basically. And mm. maybe that... Maybe that is a reason that people might not connect with it because it is such a kind of personal thing. And if so, that's a fault of, I guess, the text more than the film. But it's a very faithful adaptation. I mean, right. it deviates in certain ways, but there's a lot of the dialogue is lifted kind of directly from the novel. Um, One thing I would say, it's quite... A- it's not explicit in terms of that kind of explicit, but it is quite strong, this film. And so it's not a film that you would go and see with your gran, for example. Maybe not, no. But, you know, at the same time, it's like it, it doesn't kind of shy away from any of that stuff. And like no, I say, it's, it's, not, exactly. it's not explicit, actually. It's, yeah, it's, it's dealing with the physical side of their relationship in a way which is, you know, they're, they're basically not entirely sure, uh, certainly initially, like how to kind of deal with these emotions and feelings that they that they have and it actually takes a while for the for them to admit it to each other as well and and when that kind of comes to the fore you're kind of waiting for that moment of physical that first moment and when it comes it's yeah it happens in a very kind of nonchalant way and i i, I kind of love that mm. one of the things that i love about this movie and and definitely kind of it was a realization that i had seeing it for the second time is that there's a soundtrack that has been supplied by Sufjan Stevens. Mm-hmm. And then there's there's this kind of tinkling piano score. I think one of the things that makes a great movie is like, I, I guess it's this kind of alchemy. You know, it's like it's things happening in concert. It's, it's, a, it's not just a great performance, but like a great performance and some music segues in and, and then the camera moves in a certain way and then a line of dialogue comes out. And there are just so many moments in this film where it's like this could only be the experience of a movie. You know, mm. I couldn't get these emotions from reading this dialogue or just watching this clip without sound. Or you have to have the full experience for it to to reach you. And um, it's just so satisfying to see a director who is like playing on all the senses. I think sensual film is probably a good mm. way to to describe it. Very nice, David. Fives across the board from you. I'd probably say four, five, five because I think mm. I was slightly. You know, as I say, with the, with the director's previous work, I, I really like them, but not to the point where I was like champing at the bit to see okay. what we do next. Yeah, same here for for me for scores. Right. Uh, I've seen it twice, and I, I I know it's a film I'll watch many many more times over the years. And yeah, it's a kind of film that makes you realise that f- filmmaking is like an art and not a science. Interesting. Anyway, I really didn't like. I am love, and I really liked a bigger splash, and this one kind of sits in between the two. I liked it. You know, I do apologise because it's obviously gone over my head. And I'm a bit of a philistine, but I thought it was it was nice. Don't and say that. Yeah, no, you shouldn't no, do yourself do, down. Yeah. I mean, no, yeah, they're, 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 it's not like everyone's got to love the movie. I right. Mean. There are some really nice bits in it, and I particularly like one shot where Luca Guadagnino stays on a shot in the kitchen until somebody closes the freezer door. Yeah. You, you related to I that. really appreciated that. That's, that's one of those moments where you know they probably didn't do many takes, but that just happened to be in a take in the edit room that he spotted and, and liked the kind of randomness of it and kept it in. And I, and I love that. Yeah, I think that really makes the movie. Just to, just to add one final little thing, it, is, it was all shot in a town called Kramer, which is actually Guadagnino's hometown. Oh, there you go. And I think you, you really do get a sense that he's on home turf with this movie, the, the, the sort of relationship he has with all the space. 
Mm. Yeah, it's a very nice way of spending two hours, ten minutes in Italy in the middle of summer. Indeed. Mm. Yeah, doing good things for the Lombardian tourism board. Yeah. Let's move on, because up next we've got uh, another lovely slice of scenery as we go on the hunt for the world of people in our film club. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yes, Film Club. Shining its particular spotlight this week on a hunt for the world of people in honour of the fact that Taika Waititi has directed the new Marvel offering. This, his previous film, I think, Dave, is that right? Yes. Yes. This concerns a young Maori boy and his foster father who embark on an epic adventure, without really meaning to, through the New Zealand bush on the run from social services and pretty much everybody in New Zealand. This is the moment when they encounter a group of hunters. Look, we got lost, I got injured, he's fine, it was basically a holiday. Not a real holiday because you made me do stuff. Like what? Just stuff. He had a sore leg so he made me do things for him. It was hard at first because my hands are so soft. But I got used to it. I didn't really want to do it but it was the only way to survive. It wasn't always hard. Sometimes I got to do my own thing. He pretty much never joined in with me, though. I asked if he wanted to play with me, but... he would just make me play with myself. I feel sick. I feel sick, you. Well, hang on, he doesn't know what he means. You're a bloody pervert. What'd you call me? You heard him? Yeah, you heard him, you're a perv. Hey, he's not a pervert, you dickhead! Shut up, Ricky. Yeah. Shut up, Ricky. Hey, only I get to tell him to shut up. Ooh, brainwasher. It's interesting how much that dialogue mirrors the clip we had from Thor Ragnarok earlier on. The same guy writing it, of course. Well, no, but I find that very weird. Yeah, they are almost, like, identical, and Taika Waititi doesn't have any screenwriter or story credit on the new really? Thor. Really? I mean, I it's... wonder whether he just does something with... I mean, that scene we played from Thor Ragnarok earlier, his character in it... That whether the line itself is actually that funny, but it's his kind of mm. Kiwi accent, the way mm. he delivers the line is, well, there is, is very human. There's a kind of growing tradition of quirky Kiwi comedy. You've got Flight of the Concords, and, and, and certainly this film fits into it as well. And his previous uh, film, uh, What We Do in the Shadows, which I never caught, but seemed to be very much on that tip. 
I think I read about Thor. One of his kind of techniques was actually using improvisation. So he he'd do a lot of improvised dialogue and improvised scenes, and they sort of remained in the film. So I guess beyond actually writing the script, I think that was his kind of. That's why there's that similarity. Mm. Yeah, I remember seeing a film by Taika Waititi in about I think it was 2006 or something called Eagle versus Shark, mm. and it really felt like um, it was a very kind of winsome comedy that was trying to sort of piggyback on the kind of burgeoning American indie scene at the time. It was like, like Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, it was a very sort of like, hey, you like Napoleon Dynamite? Get a load of this. And it was really bad. <laughs> and it kind of put me off of, uh, of you know, I was just like, no, we're, we're, not, we're not friends anymore. So didn't really see any of his stuff and uh, for, for a long while. And then uh, caught um, What We Do in the Shadows. Which again, I thought was like, even though it was, re- it was really short, I thought it could have been really short, like kind of three, three minutes short. Oh. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, it was we, a sketch idea, basically stretched over. A... That's kind of how I felt. And he's doing another one of those next, following the werewolves, played okay. by, with Reese Darby. And um, and yeah, I think Hunt for the Wilder People is, you know, when it had come out, I didn't really see it, and then I'd nothing I'd read about it seemed that interesting to me because I, you know, had this, you know relationship with him and then yeah it started to get on all these films of the year polls yeah and and i thought well i'd better give this a a shot so um so yeah so we and, did and we did and and yeah it's very nice what very did, very nice what did listeners make of it yeah we've got some uh listeners agree- agreeing with that so, uh, rob anybody i don't know if that's his real name but <laughs> it says favorite film of 2016 yeah that, that was said by a few people actually andy winter uh, comes back with charming but overrated mm. so not his film of 2016 presumably we asked if people were fans of it and uh joanne meyer said he thought it was shallow and derivative i'm not sure what it would be necessarily derivative of maybe his that kind films. of yeah, style of brand of uh, Kiwi comedy, but it seems to be one that it does divide people a little bit. And I guess as with as with comedy generally, mm. I think it does depend on how much you respond to that that style of um, quite dry humour. I think, um, but it's it's a very light, fl- kind of fluffy film. It's quite easy watching, and yeah, a lot, a lot of it just comes down to the performances. I think he's mm. what is he's very good with working with actors and. Well, yeah, um, Sam Neill is great in this, yeah. and, the, and the and the kid uh, as well. Name Julian Dennison. There you go. I was saying before with the Thor film, I was really impressed with how Waititi on what I think is his first large scale production, how at ease mm. he was with it all, to the extent that he could knock all that off and still find time to voice one of the kind of significant characters within it. I mean, he seems to be just a guy who kind of gets making films. And this one, I mean, you can see, I thought you could almost see him finding his feet in it because there are some choices that he makes, especially early on, that are a bit clunky. But the film, almost without you realising it, manages to move from being this slightly quirky, offbeat comedy at the start to being an actual, a, a proper epic, but without ever losing that intimacy. So I was really impressed with it by then. Yeah, it's one that kind of wins you over, isn't mm. it? And I know what you mean. There's, there's certainly bits early on when they kind of go into the bush and they're being tracked. There's there's, there's a bit where they hide behind a, a sort of base of a tree and uh, Ricky Baker, the, the young boy, says something like, oh, it's just like Lord of the Rings. And you think, mm. oh, it's that kind of film where it's just, you know, mining humour from other pop culture. And I'm glad it kind of grew up a bit beyond that. It didn't just kind of rest on that. And I, I think that makes it maybe not so derivative as... 
some people may think. Mm. One of the issues I had, and again, one of the things that made it so weird to see that he'd gone on to make the Thor film. How do you think that happened, by the way? In this New York Times thing, there is a description of how it happened and, you know, some of the things he said to Kevin Feige. But was he invited by Marvel or did he pitch himself? I guess so. I guess, I mean, remember that what we do in the shadows is like made like 20 times its budget back just in um, New Zealand. I mean, it's the biggest Kiwi film ever made. Right. So, I mean, you know, he has made a massive homegrown success. I'd be interested to know, actually, one of the things I liked about this film is that, and maybe it's slightly different for him, is it has a bit of a social conscience to it. I follow Mr. Watiti on Twitter, Mm. and when he's not doing his little kind of funnies, you know, he's getting in quite sort of fiery political debates with people about things like homelessness and and uh, and government subsidy and arts and things like that in in New Zealand and he's quite sort of outspoken about all that and and, and I think th- this film for me more so than any of his other ones which feel like quite sort of like trifles basically mm. you know he's he wants to say something about you know the experience of of orphans and the foster system and you know literacy and um and even like it gets really dark in some places where you've got you know Sam Neill's character Heck being essentially accused of sexual abuse and mm. and that that their kind of adventure is being seen from another angle as a kind of you know child abuse thing, which is kind of quite shocking. But he handles it in quite an interesting way. Mm. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Should we sign off with a another listener comment? Go on then. At the filmology just says double gangster. Right. Oh, there you go. If you've seen it, you'll know what that means. And if you haven't, I think you probably should. Let's nominate what's coming up next week. Now, next week, actually, Adam, you've invited people to vote. It being Halloween. Yeah. In we time thought, for our next podcast. We, we asked people what what a sort of go-to uh, scary movie to watch on Halloween is. We got, yeah, some interesting feedback, actually. Quite a lot of people suggesting the film Halloween, the original John Carpenter. A few more contemporary ones, things like It Follows, mm. The Shining gets mentioned a few times. Actually, the one that, that caught my eye, which was, yeah, a couple of recommendations of it, a film called The House of the Devil, Okay, which is a film from, I think, 2009 by an American uh, indie director called Ty West. Short, I think, like 80 minutes, really cracking, really scary watch. Cool. It's it's kind of made as a bit of a homage to 80s sort of low-budget horror movies. Does it with a very straight back. Oh, so yeah, There's yeah. no pastiche. Yeah, if you were if you're kind of watching it not knowing when it was made, yeah, you'd be forgiven for thinking it was actually a film from the 80s. Right. Are you here for Mother? Yes. Yes, I am. Wonderful. You're a godsend. It's nothing. Not to us, it's not. Well, I'm glad to do it. Hmm. Vivian Ullman. Samantha. Sam. Nice to meet you. What's the matter, Sam? Oh, um, nothing. I just, I thought, um... Your husband went upstairs looking for you, and I didn't expect to see you come in from over there. I just, I get disoriented sometimes. My friend Megan says I'm out to lunch. I was downstairs in the basement looking for my furs. I just can't get used to this cold weather. I love the heat. We're from the desert, you know. House of the Devil, Ty West. Yeah, I'm someone, as I say, I don't sort of scare easily but the first time I saw it which was in the cinema I was yeah glued to my seat in terror so right it might not have been glued
Our Never fave um, Greta Gerwig is in it as well. Oh, is she? I think Lena Dunham is in it as well, actually. No. Maybe. Stop. Yeah, but don't let that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, right, okay. House of the Devil, that's up next week on Film Club in Truth and Movies, which we'll also be discussing. Adam? Uh, we're going to be taking a look at The Killing of a Sacred Deer, Ooh. which is the new one by Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos. It was in Cannes, and yeah, hopefully it'll be a bit of a divisive one. I know we're a bit mi- mixed on it here. Are you? Uh, and also, hopefully... Um, he did The Lobster. He did The Lobster and Dogtooth. He's made a few films. I think this is like second English language film. As, as our review says... It's got as much to do with sacred deers, killing sacred deers, as the lobster had to do with lobsters. Yeah. Right. So. Uh, and hopefully we'll also be doing Murder on the Orient Express, ah. the Ken Branagh joint. Looking forward to that. Which looks... Proper movie. Yeah, which looks bizarre. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll get a slightly longer review uh, in <laughs> next week's Truth and Movies then. Excellent. If you do want to get in touch with us, remember, there's the Little White Lies website. Uh, there's truthandmovies at tcolondon.com, which is our email address. There's LWLies on Twitter and Facebook as well. Anything else you want to mention, David? Yeah, just to re-emphasize that if you do go and see Call Me By Your Name and you enjoy it, yep. we have made an entire magazine dedicated to it. So you might be able to uh, purchase said product and enjoy it yourself. It is a beautiful magazine. And we've got interviews with Army Hammer and Timothy Chalamet and, and the director as well in there. And oh, Esther right. Garel. All of them. The whole gang. But, wow. Yeah. Okay. The complete guide to one of the standout movies of this year, available now in particularly kind of discerning establishments. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks, David. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, listeners. We'll be back next week. See you then. This has been a Seven Digital production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.